Good morning, gang. Good to be here with you today for our Tuesday devotion. Uh, looking forward to continuing our series through Job, though uh, I do have to say uh, it doesn't get very pretty for quite some time. And, uh, and now we're going to begin the part of Job where we're going to really start to skip around because uh, what you're going to see happen uh, throughout the book is Job's friends attempt to try and explain to him why it is the suffering has come upon him and what it is he needs to do to um, prevent the suffering from continuing and from going on into his future. Now, uh, if you remember the last time we got together, uh, Job's friends had done well. I mean, we got to give them credit where credit is due. There's three verses where they do well in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Uh, we found out that they sat with Job for seven straight days. They didn't say a word, just were present with him. And we talked about how important that was and that is for those who are suffering to just be present. It might be the most single important thing you can do for those who are suffering is just be with them. Uh, you're not going to have the perfect words. No one does. But if you can be there and just be there, uh, especially if you can say less rather than more, uh, it can be a great comfort. Well, uh, today, I mean, Job has just gotten done lamenting his life as we went over last week, saying to his friends that he wishes that he was never born and that all he wants now is to die. And the whole lament is rife with dramatic statements and bitter complaining. And so in response, Job's friends seem to not be able to take it anymore. They're, they just have enough. Um, and so they're going to let him know their feelings on the matter. And the first of his friends to preach is a guy named Eliphaz. And so I'm going to read the first nine verses of chapter four, and then we'll sort of dissect what his message is. It says, quote, Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. End of reading. Well, let me just say this up front. Of the three preachers that we meet in this book, Eliphaz seems to be the most kind-hearted of the group. If you look at his discourse going on into chapter 5, you'll see that he at least affirms Job's good character in the first few words. You know, behold, you have instructed many, etc. You have upheld him who was stumbling. On top of this, our dear Eliphaz does make true statements about God and his character throughout his speech, so he's not completely off the rails. I mean, often the, doing something wrong, um, you know, in Scripture or in life, it doesn't mean that you're wrong about everything. It's just enough 
it's just enough of a problem that it taints the, the whole message. And really what message he preaches in this passage to Job is the message that is very common today. It is sometimes labeled the prosperity gospel or the prosperity uh, preacher, uh, prosperity doctrine. And basically the message says something very, very, very logical to us. Good morning, Bonnie. Good morning, Glenna. I don't see who else is there. I think I saw Brian's name there. Hi, Brian. Um, but the message of the prosperity gospel is really, really simple, and it's, it's the fundamental message of really of every religion that's ever existed. And it goes like this. You get what you deserve. You sow seeds of blessing, you get blessing. You sow seeds of destruction, you get destruction. That's the fundamental tenet of the doctrine. It's a message often preached to the suffering and the poor, and it is a message that even if well-intended ends up beating the soul of the hurting. So, why is this prosperity message to those who suffer hurtful rather than helpful? Let's talk about that. Well, first of all, the reason that that message is hurtful rather than helpful is because it focuses our attention inwardly. In other words, it drives us back within ourselves for strength. That's one of the first things that Eliphaz drops on our buddy Job. He directs him inward. If you remember what he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Now, of course, fear of God is great. Fear of God is wonderful and biblical and right and true. The same with integrity in all our ways. That's great. Yes, these are both good qualities and characteristics we should cultivate. And indeed, as the early chapters record, Job had generally walked with both of these characteristics. But there's a problem here. And the problem is, Eliphaz doesn't merely hold up these things as good things, but as ultimate things by which Job can base his life on. Job's confidence and hope, those are the words he uses, are found in those things on the inside. His ability to fear God and his own integrity. He is therefore placing the burden, placing the burden on the suffering Job for how well he is doing at uh, in his life. So then suffering then becomes something that Job can control. This is the message that the prosperity gospel preaches so often. We say, if I just do this more or walk better, then I can avoid difficulty and suffering in this life. This type of thing may seem to work for a while. It might, but I am telling you, there will be a day where you will have no good reason that you can possibly think of for why suffering has come upon you. It happens to everybody. It's part of being a human being. And if you've built your life on this very predictable, controllable God, who basically functions like a vending machine, you do enough good, you have enough integrity, then he gives you blessing, then you are going to have a deep, deep, deep crisis of faith. If your faith is built on a God who basically goes tit for tat and not a God who is with us in our suffering and through our suffering, it's, it's going to be too heavy to carry. The whole thing, it kind of, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the story with Peter. Um, you know, Peter is, 
at one point walking on the water to Jesus. You remember what happens there, right? Uh, he instructs Peter to do the same. I mean, Jesus is walking on the water, instructs Peter to do the same. Initially, Peter, as long as he is focused on Christ, looking away from himself, not on his own strength or confidence or ability, but looking to Christ, he's able to walk. But as soon as he starts looking at his own situation and focusing on himself, looking down at his feet and the waves, he begins sinking. And that is ultimately what the prosperity gospel will do to you. It will. It will tell you and Peter to not look to Christ, but to look to your feet. And it's asking you constantly, are you walking good enough? Watch your feet, watch your feet, watch your feet. And the Bible is saying, no, watch Jesus. Jesus's confidence, your confidence is in Jesus's fear of God. Your confidence is in Jesus's integrity, not your own. All right. There's something even worse about the, the prosperity gospel, though, and that is that it accuses us. So if it wasn't enough to get us to look inside, well, eventually, if we're looking inside enough, well, then we, we are going to be accused. And, and Eliphaz does this even subtly here, verse 7 of chapter 4. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, Job... Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Here's the translation. Job, you and your kids must have sowed some trouble somewhere, buddy. You must have. And again, this is a very natural inclination for us. We experience suffering, suffering and we assume that it must be because of something we did to deserve it. But this line of thinking is far from the case. The Apostle Paul suffered many, 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 many times throughout his ministry. He writes to the Corinthians, uh, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from river, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hard hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure paul describing his best life now apparently ends there he does not say at the end of that list and all this suffering came because i had some secret sin i was dealing with that i refused to bring out in the open he doesn't say, all this suffering came upon me because my faith was just too weak. No. That's not the right answer to this problem. It doesn't, he didn't say, all this suffering came upon me because I, I had been, you know, I had, I had so many, so many problems in the past that karma's coming to get me. Karma's coming to get me. No. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it, it narrows it down to that, to karma. In contrast, the true gospel tells us that suffering isn't necessarily an evidence of God's anger at us, but God's patient love and care for us. That's, I know, I know it's counter to everything that you and I think, but it's true. The true gospel reminds us that in our suffering that our Lord suffered too and carried the cross all the way to Golgotha on our behalf. The true gospel doesn't accuse us in our suffering, 
but comforts us in our suffering and releases us from the burden of trying to fix it ourselves, inviting us to cast our cares upon him. That's what the true gospel says to us. And yet there's still another problem with the prosperity gospel, and that is, uh, in the final analysis, it lies to us about reality. And what I mean is that the prosperity message leads us to deny what we know is true. Check out what Eliphaz says in chapter 5 toward the end of his speech as he waxes eloquent about uh, all the blessings that will come if Job will just be better. He says to Job, a man whose ten children have just died and whose property and inheritance has been destroyed, quote, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent, in other words, your, your home is at peace. And you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. Listen to what he just said. You shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. He's talking about his home that has literally ten children missing. He goes on, you shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. Good night, nurse. This prosperity message always gives such talk. Everything will be just fine. If you just believe more, obey more, be more pure, then life will be peaches and cream. But of course, this is not the truth. It is possible. Indeed, one can expect it to happen that in this life, suffering will come upon us. And when this happens, the preacher of the prosperity message will insist on putting it all back on you somehow. They may even suggest that until you become get better, God may abandon you. But the preacher of the true gospel just says, no, God is in this too. He was in it with Christ on the cross and he is in it with you now. He may seem distant and uncaring, but this actually is an evidence of some of his greatest work for you. As Gerhard Ferdi has asked, if God is not involved in suffering, what is he involved with? Whoever does not know God hidden in suffering does not know God at all. And so, over and against his friend's various explanations and excuses that sought to let God off the hook, they blamed Job for the problems and suffering he was facing. However, however, Job preached a message that essentially laid responsibility at the feet of God. It's an interesting thing. He blames God. And what does God say when it's all said and done about Job's friend Eliphaz's message? My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what was right. But about Job, who, I mean, is blaming God for all this, he says, my servant Job has spoken about me what is right. That is, God accepts responsibility for the pain and the suffering. He does not shrink back from it, but declares that he is working in it and through it. I think our biggest tendency, and one of the reasons the, the prosperity message is so appealing to us, is because we, we're trying to find a way in our minds to get God off the hook. And God instead says, no, as a matter of fact, you don't have to get me off the hook. I'm going up on a cross to deal with the suffering 
and the pain. I'm going to deal. I'm going to. I'm going to suffer and go through the pain myself. Let me close with a quote. William Cooper, friend and contemporary of John Newton, man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Um, Cooper or Kuiper, depending on who you talk to, was quite a, a hymn writer himself. Um, he wrote Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, like, definitely top three favorite hymns. And there is a fountain, definitely top five favorite hymns for me. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Cooper was no stranger to suffering. I mean, he struggled with deep depression. And on three separate occasions, he had actually tried to end his life. And after one of these suicide attempts, he penned the words to a hymn entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And I want you to listen to the words, because I think in the final analysis, this is a whole lot better than anything that you're going to get from the prosperity message. He writes this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That is the sobering truth, that in our suffering, God is, God is not uh, paying us back tit for tat. He's taken the payment for our sin on the cross. But behind the frowning, seeming frowning providence, he is hiding a smiling face with us. All right, gang, next week we'll continue on with the next preacher in our series uh, in Job. Hope you have a great week. May God richly bless you.